Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Spigit by Soho CRM. So you don't have to use spreadsheets, notepads, reminders, and any of those different 10 apps to manage your customer information. I mean, think about it yourself. I mean, whether you are a startup, a small business, a freelancer, did you know that you can manage your business as effectively as at any large company? Within the current market right now, it's more critical than ever to retain existing customers while you're also staying on top of your pipeline of sales. So Begin supercharges your workflow and helps you engage prospects, manage pipelines, and close deals without skipping a beat. It has a super simple drag-and-drop interface, which will have you up and running in 30 minutes. And all the listeners of our podcast are really getting a really cool deal here. 15-day free trial along with 50% off and up to $100 when you sign up. So all you need to do is go to soho.to forward slash begin Pantera Advisor. Lastly, this episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So as a founder, you need to always be in problem-solving mode and really being faced with challenging situations, whether it's with life or with the business itself, you need to find a way to find the better solutions, the solutions that are going to help you to really overcome that roadblock. And a therapist, a therapist like, for example, the ones that BetterHelp matches you with could be a good option for you. I mean, I remember, for example, for myself with relationships, with experiences, I've used therapy in the past, and it really helped with the loading, depression, anxiety. So BetterHelp is a really good solution. You could try it because it's convenient, it's accessible, it's affordable, and it's entirely online where you can get matched with a therapist that could be the right fit for you. So if you're interested in this, go to betterhelp.com forward slash dealmakers, and you'll get today 10% off for your first month. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So super excited today with the guests that we have. You know, we're gonna be talking a lot about building, scaling, financing, finding incredible technology, talking about engineering, you know, like how to deal with engineers too, how they're perceived and how they actually are. I mean, you name it, everything in between. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Doug Kirkpatrick. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alejandro. It's great to be here. So, I mean, you had quite a intense, you know, when it comes to traveling, upbringing. You know, your parents were diplomats. Uh, so give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Life growing up was an exposure to a lot of the world that very few Americans get. Um, my parents met and were married in Tehran in the early 50s. I was born in Paris uh, in 1959. Then we moved to Beirut when Beirut was still the, the Paris of the Middle East. We moved to Nicosia, Cyprus. Uh, we were there, unfortunately, just as civil war broke out. We were evacuated. My, my mom and my brother and I were evacuated to Beirut while my dad stayed behind as essential personnel in the embassy. Then we went back to Cyprus. When that was over, we moved to Warsaw, Poland, when it was still behind the Iron Curtain. Then we went to Vienna, Austria, when it was kind of the hub between east and west when we still had the cold war going on we didn't come home until i was 15. so um lots of soccer uh i even had to try to learn how to play cricket once when i was in one of the british schools uh and very 
uh, little football or little league baseball. So it was a little bit of an adjustment coming back to the United States. That's amazing. I mean, obviously, you know, having had the exposure to, you know, all the traveling, you know, all those wars, you know, the uncertainty, new friends, you know, that you were making everywhere. I think that it has probably given you a different worldview than the traditional individual that is born and raised, you know, and stays in the same area. So how do you think this has shaped, you know, the way that, you know, you approach things? You know, I, I think it makes you realize there's multiple ways to solve challenges. All of those countries worked. Lebanon, when we were there, was a shared society between three fundamentally different religious groups, and they all got along. I, I wish that was still true. It's not true anymore. You saw the communist system as it was uh, in Warsaw behind the Iron Curtain, and as sad as it was, it still worked. Uh, then you saw the socialist system that was present in, in Vienna. You get a sense that there's multiple ways to do things and there's multiple ways to look at how things can get done. I, I think it's fair to say that that has influenced me throughout my career in various ways in terms of how you get from A to B, that there's not a single unitary route. So tell us about that love developed for math and physics. <laughs> well, when you're in a tiny little school, uh, one of the things you get to do is you get to get advanced training in a lot of different things. I resonated with math as a young child. I taught myself calculus in 10th and 11th grade. So when I finally got back to the United States, um, we had a small problem at the high school because I immediately had to start going to university to get the next mathematics that I was going into. From a science perspective, it gave me a huge advantage. And I think this is one of the things that we don't think about enough in our education system is, and particularly when you get to physics, so much of physics can be obscured by the math that is used to describe it. I had a tremendous advantage by the time I got to see the equations, the equations weren't scary to me anymore. I'd been dealing with them for years. So I still remember the first time I saw Maxwell's equations and I just looked at it and said, okay, yeah, I get it. That's a curl, that's a divergence, and that's what we're looking at. And in my mind, I was looking at the geometric patterns of what this meant about the physics of what I was looking at. And I looked at a couple of my colleagues in the class that were very, very, very smart. And, and the, I'm, I'm seeing the deer in the headlights look. And you know, I think it dawned on me at that point in time that I had been given some tools through that upbringing and through that advancement that were going to affect me throughout the rest of my career. It just, it's just, it gives you a different, that, my upbringing, it gives you a, an opportunity to look at things through lenses that a lot of other people don't ever get. And question here that comes up now is when you graduated, I mean, you were still wondering what, what you were going to do next. And in fact, you know, you accepted, you know, a position to, to, to teach there in Maryland and then to split the time, you know, between that and then figuring out what will be next. So how did you really, you know, like came up with, with, with the right answer on what was the path to follow from a professional career perspective? Serendipity. I think one of the things that I was really fortunate is that I was surrounded by older people who very much wanted me to succeed and whatever that success meant. So whether that was 
the chairman of the electrical engineering department at Maryland that gave me that position in the first place, or the head of the research lab at the Naval Research Lab that I was working at, letting me go in that direction, or the folks in DARPA that were driving me in a given direction. It was more of a urge to move forward, not a definition of what forward meant. And I think that was very helpful to me. So it was a huge, just a panoply of opportunities, a willingness to let me experiment in which of those opportunities would be the ones that I could resonate with the best. And then understanding that I might be able to get so far in this, and then I was going to have to change horses over there, and then I was going to change horses over there. It's something as I look at younger people that I mentor, that I try to do the same thing. I try not to define what winning means in my lens. I try to help them understand that winning is about whatever winning is for you. How does that make you happy? How can you make your greatest contribution? How can you do what you do best? That was really good for me. Had a lot of people that helped me along the way. Now, you did spend quite a bit, a, a bit of time when it comes to lighting, right? I mean, that was a space that you went into. I mean, you, you worked at Fusion Lighting. Then you did a DARPA. Now, in your case, you know, this was a space where you spent quite a bit of time and where you really got first access now to developing new technologies. And that came with flashlights. What happened there with flashlights? A plus B. Uh, let me explain. I was in the lighting industry. We were pursuing an RF-driven light bulb for a variety of applications, mostly, again, because it was a very, very efficient way to drive the lamp. But I saw through the world that LEDs were coming. And I tried to get my colleagues to recognize we needed to move at a semiconductor type of innovation pace. And they were still, they were mostly former GE lighting people, and they wanted to go with the old lighting pace. And it was clear to me that wasn't going to work. So I shifted and I went over to DARPA. And one of the very first things I did at DARPA was talk with my colleagues that were involved in the LED lighting world. It was a gentleman named John Carano, who was in one of the other offices there. And he was very, very good. All of their heads were stuck around this idea that we had to get to 60 or 80 lumens per watt before we have anything because they were focusing on lighting. They weren't focusing on where's the first place. Um, I had already started working with special forces. My brother uh, had been in special forces in the Navy. Uh, so I resonated with certain kinds of things that would help them a great deal. And initially, when we set out to build the LED flashlight, what we were trying to do was think about, okay, I can make an LED that has the color of a supermoon. I can make a lens that allows the brightness to be the same as a supermoon so that I won't get the night blindness. I will have all of those features. And so we put together uh, the first couple of prototypes. And like a lot of different things, you know, the first time you make it, you, you're making it for one reason. But the first thing that one of our test customers did was drop it out of an airplane from quite high, quite high up and recognize that it would be very, very, very robust. And as a consequence, that meant that things wouldn't break. The technology was just a combination of two other things that, that I was aware of. Obviously, the LED is in here, but the other thing that's in here is a non-imaging optic. And that was the very first time in my career that I wasn't the LED guy, I wasn't the non-imaging optic guy, 
but I was a guy that was in a position to understand both of those technologies and put them together. It, it took all of nine months. And what it did from the LED world is they didn't have to wait for 60 lumens per watt. We made 600,000 of these, got them over to, to Iraq and Afghanistan. And then that jump-started the entire industry. And so part of that was also something as I started thinking about it from a technology, economic, how do you actually drive these kinds of changes, starting to think about where do you find, how do you go through the process of finding the customers, the applications that have the very, very, very early returns so you can start coming up the hockey stick. I think one of the things we do in Silicon Valley and venture capital and as entrepreneurs is we think too quickly about scale. We think, okay, how am I going to get to scale as opposed to how are you going to score your first goal? How is that going to lead to the second goal? And how is that going to drive the hockey stick? So you really, you can't push your way up the hockey stick. You have to find the applications that are going to pull you up the hockey stick. And in the LED world, the very first of those applications was a flashlight. As low tech as that sounds, the return on investment for the DOD was two months. So, you know, that that opened my eyes in terms of how I started thinking about things. No, I mean, that's incredible. But, but, but one thing that is even more incredible is here you are, you know, building the products. And then all of a sudden, you know, you decide to make a switch and you go into venture capital. I mean, that's quite a, a 360. I didn't think so at the time. The, the firm that I went into was trying to build a team that had financial professionals as well as technical professionals. They were very much investing in clean tech, and they were realizing that they needed technology filters on the front end of what they were going to be looking at. I don't think I need to tell you or a lot of other venture capitalists out there that oftentimes you have entrepreneurs coming in pitching technologies that are at the border of understanding of the community, much less the understanding of the people who they're pitching to. And the firm that I went to, Vantage Point, wanted to have a few of us that were hyper-technical to be able to say, listen, I can't tell you this won't work. So if you think it might work and you think that is a good way to go, okay. Um, but at the same point in time, we Literally, I'm sure I don't need to tell you this. We saw pitches that came in that violated laws of physics, right? You know, this can't work. It violates entropy. This can't work. It violates these laws of mechanics. Um, and it's important in this process, either for a venture capitalist or as an entrepreneur, how do you throw out the opportunities as quickly as possible so that you focus your energies on the ones that have a chance? Throw out the ones that don't have a chance. Throw out the ones that are likely no's. Focus your energy on the ones that are likely yeses. That's what I learned to do when I was at DARPA. I ran 27 programs. I probably read three or 4,000 proposals. So you have to learn how to filter very, very quickly. I hear you. And you did that, you know, just that, because after you know, working there for like three years, you know, and, and, and change, you know, basically what you did is you created a venture studio, you know, or kind of like a micro fund, you know, but it could be viewed as a venture studio as well, where you financed, you know, a bunch of ideas 
of which, you know, Erida, you know, your baby, you know, the rocket ship that you're embarked on, you know, really came out. So I guess, you know, out of those ideas, you know, there's a few of them that are still alive. But I guess before going into Erida, what would you say was the biggest lesson that you learned, you know, about knowing when to walk away from an idea or a project? Yeah, sometimes that's the most important thing that you do. I had a professor early on in, in my undergraduate that was kind enough to tell us all, you only get so many shots on goal in life. Make sure that the time you're spending in something is something that you want to be doing. And so one of the hardest lessons that you learn in the venture studio, the microcap, or even in the big firms is which ones of these actually have a chance to make a big difference. And then the hardest, I had to do this a few times when I was at DARPA, we had to do this a few times at Interproduct Partners, the micro venture fund. When you see something that even though it's making success against what it originally said it was going to do, that the environs around it have changed and it no longer makes any sense. I think one of the classic ones in that domain that was that we did when I was at Interproduct Partners was a company called Blackpack. And Blackpack was about taking nanoporous carbon as a storage vehicle for natural gas and using that to be able to make uh, length, uh, voyage length type vehicles with natural gas tanks. And it could work. It was great. But the environs changed as the Teslas of the world came forward. And the perception was, well, that's carbon, it's dirty, it's natural gas, it's dirty. This is electricity and a battery, and by definition, it's clean. I mean, if you ran it all the way back and you looked at what the source of that electricity was, it was a push, perhaps even favoring the natural gas vehicles. But the bottom line out of all of this is that perception matters, and you realized you were running uphill, or as we like to say in the industry, you're facing headwinds. Um, and at some point in time, you just look at it and go, you're not going to fight city hall anymore. You're going to walk away because again, you only get so many shots on goal. That's not to say you want to be easily deterred, um, because I would turn around and say the opposite of that would be Aridin, uh, where, uh, a lot of perception would have initially said we were headed up a problem that was going to be extremely difficult for a very long time, but you have to make a judgment that you're doing something that needs doing and is fundamentally going to change everything. And there's a balance between those two pieces. It's a judgment. I, I don't need to tell you when you look at these things, very, very few venture decisions are zero one. Most of them are 70-30, if you're lucky. Uh, the hardest ones are the ones that are 60-40 because you may end up disagreeing about which one's the 60 and which one's the 40. Those are, those are really the challenges. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either 
knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Sieberson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com and we would love to take a look at helping you out. So then let's talk about Ereda, you know, which was one of the companies that, that made sense you know, as part of the, um, this micro fund. You know, tell us about Ereda. Tell us about you know, what ended up being the business model of Eridan. How do you guys make money? So Eridan was formed out of taking a look at another company that Kleiner had asked me to take a look at called Paragon Devices, which was supposed to be gallium nitride on diamond, except that wasn't actually what was happening. And I had the good fortune to meet the co-founders in Eridan, Dubravko Babic and Earl McCune through that process. And the experience to sit down with them after the fact and say, okay, gallium nitride looks important in this sense. Direct polar circuits look important in this sense. Let's talk about how you put the two of those together and what that might make. We initially thought we were building just a next generation radio for the military. We weren't sure that we would be able to do the state of the art 4G modulation at the time, much less the 5G modulation. We weren't sure what we could get the cost down to for commercial applications. Of course, there's always the next lure of, oh, we want to do this in handsets because that's the massive, that's the thing that everybody walks around with. So there was a lot of initially, let's just go see what the art of the possible is and figure out what that can do. DARPA was very generous with us. We got a $5 million contract with them to start with, uh, which really kicked us off tremendously well. And in that process, we had one of those types of things that you always hear about in Silicon Valley, that we were sitting there going through the process of what keeps us, and perhaps this goes all the way back to my upbringing and how we think about things, what keeps us from doing the 4G and 5G modulation in this direct polar type circuit? Why, why is that an impossibility? And, and we threw out the idea on the table of, well, we could just put an attenuator right in the middle here. There goes one of those clocks I told you about in the background. The idea to put an attenuator in line of a hyper-efficient amplifier system is, is pretty much orthogonal to what you'd think of doing, but everybody paused. We had a culture where out-of-the-box ideas would at least be heard. And one of the engineers said, I don't have a clue if that'll work, but I can have it running in the lab in a couple of hours. And we all looked at each other and said, well, hell, and go. And I still remember the day, there were only six of us in the company at the time. And we went into the lab and he 
he brought it up. And it's like out of one of the storybooks, right? The, you never expect anything to work first time right out of the box. Well, this one did. First time right out of the box. Tink, there it was on the spectrum analyzer. And we're looking at it going, oh, shit, it really works. And it worked that easily that time. And then we all started looking at each other going, how are we going to explain this to people? And of course, Earl, who was our CTO, immediately turned and said, we need to patent this, like now. So the, the, the breakthroughs sometimes, you never know where they come from. Uh, that immediately had to make us step back and say, we're no longer just a military radio company. Now we have to go through this self-examination process of, all right, if we're going to go to market commercially, how do we do this? How do we tell our story? That was something we had a great deal of difficulty figuring out how to do to start with. And we went through a recursive process there a lot. And ultimately, we ran into uh, Jay Zaviri and his team at Social Capital. And they heard us. And that was the next jump. And Jay and his team there have been tremendously helpful to us all the way through the Series A we did with them, and then the Series B that was just announced. Because how much capital have you guys raised today? $46 million. $46 million. And, and, and what has been the expectations that you have encountered from going from one financing cycle to the next? So I think in, in the Series A, what they wanted to see in that investment group was that we transitioned from being a R&D company to producing prototypes that people could get their hands on. In Series B, it's about transitioning from prototype to production and the path to scale. So we weren't yet clear what our market path would be when we did the Series A. When we did the Series B, we know what our market path is going to be. Uh, we know why it's going to be that path, and it's not going to be the path that a lot of people might have thought of as, well, you're going you're gonna to sell to Ericsson, and that's how you're going to make your path. We still get questions every now and then. Of, so when's Ericsson going to be a customer? It's like, well, maybe never. Uh, you know, I don't know how many IBM 8086s that Honeywell bought for their mainframe computer business. Probably not many. But that's really kind of the parallel of what we represent. What we represent in the RF world and for the mobile wireless infrastructure is the same transition that the computer industry went through in going from mainframes to PCs. Initially, PCs were way behind. They weren't taken seriously. I mean, IBM gave them away because they wanted their mainframe industry to succeed. Yet. 10 years later, the PC was it. It was all over. I think that same type of transition is coming in the mobile wireless world. As we put what we are building out in the field uh, later this year, early next year, and then at scale by the end of next year, I think the writing will be on the wall that small cells have arrived, densified small cell networks are here. Macro cells will continue to be important, those big things that you see spread out across the highway. 
But the densified network is going to take over in a very, very big way, very fast, because it's more efficient, it's more bandwidth efficient, it's more capacity, it's more managed. Everything about it from a system level point of view is better. Now, as we're talking about the future here, then, Doug, imagine you go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Eridan is fully realized. What does that world look like? We're in a position where we can reduce the power consumption of the wireless infrastructure by between a factor of 10 and a factor of 100. And so that future means that we have wireless infrastructure throughout not just the United States, but throughout the world that can be sustainably powered because your footprint is now such that a small cell out in the middle of Wyoming can be powered by a two meter by two meter solar array. You no longer need to have a direct connection of electricity. That is tremendously important, not just for the remote areas in the United States, but for remote areas in, in Australia, in Africa, in India, throughout the world. What does that mean? That means we have a connected world. The minute we have a truly connected world, instead of having five or 10% of the population of the world pushing humanity forward, you've doubled that, tripled that, quadrupled it. What that means is that a whole lot of people that are sitting on the sidelines today going along for the ride, if they actually even get to go along for the ride, can now be part of pedaling the bicycle that you're on. That's a, that's a, a change of just, I think, again, use the same analogy, PC versus mainframe. How many mainframes were in Kenya? How many PCs are in Kenya? What's the total compute power in Kenya today compared to the total compute power in Kenya in 1976? It's, it's not even close. And, and as a consequence, those populations have become empowered. Those economies have become much stronger, much more robust partners to all the other economies in the world. It's absolutely a change from top to bottom. Now, obviously, here we're talking about the future. Now, let's think about the past, though. Imagine I had the opportunity of putting you into a time machine, and I was able to bring you back in time, perhaps to that moment that you were still, you know, in the VC firm, you know, and you were like there, you know, like figuring out what you wanted to do next, you know, perhaps, you know, starting something of your own. And imagine you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger self and give you that younger self one piece of business advice for launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I've given the same advice to many of my, my, my protégés. Semper Gumby. Um, Semper Fidelis is the motto of the Marines, always faithful. Semper Gumby, always flexible. Um, don't get locked in. Always be in a position. I try to do this with everybody uh, in the senior staff at Aridan. Take a day a week, a day a month, but take some time where you stay home, think about where you're going, think about what we're doing, think about what the competitive forces are, or go up to 50,000 or 100,000 feet and take the Kool-Aid and put it to the side for a moment. Re-examine the environment that you're in. Always be willing to question 
and always be willing to accept that you made the right answer and be willing to accept that you may have to re-examine that that answer may need to change a little bit. I think one of the things that I have seen founders do and my younger self do is get locked onto things too hard as opposed to I'm going to work at this. I'm going to work my ass off at this for 80 hours a week, but I'm also going to take a 10-hour chunk here, and I'm going to question whether what I'm doing is still the right thing. That's not to say you made a bad decision. It may have been a good decision at the time, but continuing to make that decision because you made that decision a year ago may or may not be the good decision now. So Semper Gumby, that, that's an easy one. The little green guy, you know, the guy that's got the, the flexible arms, that's the easiest picture to give somebody. I love it. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening, you know, that would like to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Email is something that I always try to stay caught up on. I uh, sometimes have some really bad email days. So if I don't get back to you, <laughs> please give me a week or 10 days to get back. I, I, I think I passed a record of, uh, a few weeks ago. I got 1,200 emails in one day. So um, I cannot possibly keep up with 1,200 emails in a day, but I will catch up. So Amazing. email is prior and away the best way to get me. Amazing. Well, Doc, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.